you say we are natural born killers, inherently violent, that the Hunger Games are a reminder of what monsters we are and how we need the capital to keep us from chaos. And not only is the world a brutal place, but that people enjoy its brutality. District 12 provides an excellent stage upon which to watch the battle between chaos and control play out, and as a peacekeeper, I have a front row seat. The brawl on the hob reminded me of my stint in the arena. It's one thing to speak of humans' essential nature theoretically, another to consider it when a fist is smashing into your mouth. Only this time I was more prepared. I'm not convinced that we're all as inherently violent as you say but it takes very little to bring the beast to the surface, at least under the cover of darkness. Those are the words of Coriolanus Snow. Today, dear listeners, in anticipation of the prequel movie, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, releasing this month, and also to try to make some sense of the violent conflict that we see going on right now in Israel and Palestine, we are talking about the Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Welcome to Pop Culture Catechism, conversations about music, movies, and the longings of the human heart. Let's get started. Do you remember when you were a little kid and maybe you'd get in a fight or a disagreement with a sibling or a friend, someone would do something that upset the other person, then they would react, then the other person would react, and it would escalate until a parent or a teacher notice, and what would they ask you? Probably they would ask you, who started it? Why does that question seem so important? And then they ask something like, and then what did you do? How did you respond? Say something like, two wrongs don't make a right. Now you say you're sorry. Maybe somebody got punished. Maybe somebody had to sit out. I know as a father, I frequently have these conversations all the time. These conversations are meant to teach us how to resolve conflict, how to reconcile, how to communicate. But what about when the stakes are a lot bigger than who used the toy you were just playing with? What if it's bigger than who hit who? What if there's limited food and water and you're using most of it or the other person's using most of it? What if my ancestors lived where you're living now or vice versa? What if my ancestors killed your ancestors? What if your people killed my people? What if you people killed us? Violence, how do we deal with it? When, if ever, is it justified? How do we stop it when there's been so much hurt, so much spilt blood for so long, and there's no parent or authority figure to tell us how to handle it? And I look through history, I see so many of these conflicts that just seem endless. Catholics versus Protestants. The list could go on. And I look around the world today, I see places where violence could blow up, like China and Taiwan, where it's already blown up, like Russia and Ukraine. And through history and through fiction and even in my own heart, probably the hardest example of where and how can we find peace, I think of the conflict in Israel and Palestine. Today, we're going to examine these questions. And as we do on Pop Culture Catechism, we're going to do it through the lens of a piece of art from pop culture. Today, The Hunger Games. It's one of the biggest book series and movie franchises of all times. And the prequel movie, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, comes out this month. Now, normally on the show, I invite guests who are what I have found to be the best and brightest, most awesomest Catholics I can find. Uh, but today, since we're specifically talking about conflicts between different groups and different religions, um, really wanted to talk to somebody from a non-Catholic perspective, which I haven't done a whole lot on this show. One of my former students actually recommended that I reach out to Dr. Sham Sriram. 
He's a professor of political science at Canisius University. It's a Jesuit university in Buffalo, New, Buffalo, New York. He also worked at Gonzaga which, uh, University, which is also another Jesuit college. He's a college professor. He works with young adults. He's lived in India and the United States. He's a convert from Hinduism to Islam. He spent most of his life in America, a majority Christian country. He's a practicing Muslim. He studied Judaism and the Jewish people. And so I thought, this is a really interesting person, and I want to have this conversation with him. If you don't know who I am, I'm Mike Tenney, Catholic speaker and worship leader out of Washington, D.C. I spent over a decade teaching Catholic high school theology and also trying to make it big as a rock star at night. And now I'm blessed to speak and lead music for thousands of people each year at events all over the place and through this show, Pop Culture Catechism. This is Pop Culture Catechism. It's the gospel according to pop music and movies where we look for God's love in the media that you're plugged into. So then when we unplug, we can go live the gospel in the real world. Our goal by the end of this episode is hopefully I'll have a deeper appreciation for the Hunger Games, but also help you ask some questions, maybe get some answers, maybe learn some things about the violence going on in our world, the, the unrest and lack of peace in our own hearts, and how maybe we can pursue peace, especially with people that believe and live differently than us. I want to make a special thank you to our patrons who make this show pop possible through popculturecatechism.com and the sponsor of this episode catholicmerch.store everything you buy there all the awesome catholic hoodies and mugs and hats and beanies and stuff all that supports all the shows here at awaken catholic so check them out i want to welcome to our show dr sham dr sham welcome to the show thank you uh would you tell us just a, a little bit about yourself i gave a brief in intro but uh tell us who you are and what you do yeah, well, first, I want to thank you for inviting me and also for nailing the pronunciation. Sometimes I've worked at jobs with people for years and they mispronounce my name or misspell it. Um, hashtag microaggression. So uh, a little bit more about myself. Um, you know, I'm the first person in my family born in the U.S. My parents emigrated from India in the 1970s. Um, and I grew up in suburbs of Chicago but then I had a pretty unique childhood because when I was nine, we all moved back to India. And I lived in India from nine to 17, fifth to 12th grade, graduated high school in 1997. And then I came back to the US for college and I did my undergrad at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, and then basically have stayed in the US ever since. Um, along the way, got one master's degree at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Um, and got another master's and then my PhD at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And as Mike said, previously taught at Gonzaga, have also taught at Butler University and the College of Charleston, where Victoria Ridgway was my student too. Mm -hmm. And now she's a teacher. Yep. Um, so it's really cool about the whole thing full circle. Yep. And I think it's, uh, you know, we, I don't really believe in luck or coincidence. I think it's all kind of God's plan. So I was supposed to do this podcast, and I'm grateful that I get to talk about this franchise and this topic with you, Mike. I'm grateful for you being here, grateful that Victoria connected. A shout out to Victoria Ridgway, and uh, yeah, grateful that we, we can have a, a conversation now. As I sometimes do on this show, uh, for my, my listeners, if you're not familiar with the show, sometimes I talk with people that agree with me on pretty much everything. Sometimes I talk with people that don't agree with me on anything. And But I feel like that dialogue and that 
between two people is a place where we learn. And it, I call this show pop culture catechism. What is a catechism? It's a way of teaching and learning about the faith. And through the years of Christianity, many of the catechisms have been written as a dialogue. There was a famous one called the Baltimore Catechism, which was question and answer. St. Thomas Aquinas, who's maybe the, the most famous theologian in, in the history of Catholicism, he wrote many of his things as a dialogue. So did St. Augustine. And so I feel like we are in the tradition of you know, Christian thought very much here sure. to dialogue with other people that um, may think differently than us, may have a different perspective than us, but to try to learn in that dialogue. So uh, if there's, and uh, Dr. Sean, if there's anything I ask or say that is, uh, is offensive or I mispronounce something or whatever, just know that it's out of ignorance, not out of malice. I'm grateful for you being here and being willing to share your story and your insight with uh, strangers on the internet. Um, so, a couple of things I want to talk about first. So first, uh, just as an intro, before we get into the Hunger Games, it's not all that often, I think, that a Christian and a Muslim sit down together and are friendly and chat about religion and things that we might disagree about. Sure. Um, but I wanted to start with something from one of the Catholic Church's documents from the Second Vatican Council, which was our last big church council back right. in the 60s. And they produced this document on the relationship of the church to other religions. It's called Nostra Aetate. It's real short. I highly recommend everybody read it. And it has a paragraph specifically on Islam. And I want to read it here. And then I kind of want to see what your thoughts are. And if you, you, you can like, what just what you, what you think of a Catholic perspective on Islam. So this is from Nostra Aetate. It says the church regards with esteem, the Muslims, they adore the one God living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all powerful, the creator of heaven and earth who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. They also honor Mary, his virgin mother. At times, they even call on her with devotion. In addition, they await the day of judgment when God will render their deserts to all those who have been raised up from the dead. Finally, they value the moral life and worship God, especially through prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Since, in the course of the centuries, not a few quarrels and hostilities have arisen between Christians and Muslims, that might be a bit of an understatement, <laughs> this sacred synod, meaning the, the council that's making this document, urges all to forget the past and to work sincerely for mutual understanding and to persevere and to preserve as well as to promote together for the benefit of all mankind, social justice and moral welfare, as well as peace and freedom. All right. There's, there, there's a lot there. <laughs> and I, I sent this to you a, a few days ago to, to give you a chance to look at it and think about it. But I'm just curious as a Muslim, what's your reaction to this? Uh, would you agree? Is this an a accurate description? What do you think? I, first of all, I'll say this, I think, is mostly accurate. I also want to shout out one more person. Uh, my oldest friend, I've known him since kindergarten. His name is Tim Dowling. Uh, he lives in Chicago. And interesting story about Tim is that his mom and his, his mom was a nun and oh. his dad was a priest. And they met at a school in Chicago in the early 70s. And after Vatican II, there was actually a lot of people who left the clergy to marry. Mm -hmm. Right. And his parents were one of those. So I just want to acknowledge that I've had a long time relationship with Catholicism through him. So nice. this is not so far removed from the conversations I have anyway, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. As far as the, is it pronounced Nostra Aetate? 
uh, my Latin's not very good, so that's yeah. as good as I guess. Okay. <laughs> I, this is actually a really great, I think, summary of what we believe as Muslims. And I agree. I may start to assign it in some of my classes also. Nice. Um, the only two things that I would say that as kind of an addendum is I don't this this there's a, something here about they also honor Mary, his virgin mother. At times they even call on her with devotion. Yes, like Mary or Maryam in Arabic is a profoundly important figure. In fact, there's a whole chapter of the Quran. Each chapter of the Quran is called a surah. Surah Maryam is a whole chapter devoted to her. And something Muslims love to say when they do interfaith work is that there are more references to Mary in the Quran than in the New Testament. <laughs> so that's something we love to say. But we don't, this thing about we call on her with devotion, mm -hmm. I don't exactly agree with that language because that to me implies calling on her as like a saint or for intercession. Uh, and as like, Muslims, we don't believe yeah. in in divine intercession through people. Gotcha. Uh-huh. The only and the only so that that's the only thing. The only thing I also want to mention that I think a lot of Christians may not know is that we believe as Muslims that uh, we there's a term we use in Arabic that's called the Jal, which is sometimes referred to as the Antichrist, for example. Mm -hmm. We believe that there will be a final battle when the Jal comes to earth. But what a lot of Christians may not know is we believe that Jesus, who we call Isa in Arabic, he is going to return and fight the Antichrist. And I don't think most Christians know that Muslims believe that. So we are also waiting for the return of Isa or Jesus to fight the Antichrist. Right there you go. I just solved all the tension with Baptists. <laughs> Come on back, shot. Jesus. Come on yeah. back. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and and. I, I've I've studied uh, other religions than Catholicism, Christianity a bit. I've studied a bit about Islam, but I'm certainly not an expert, and I'm sure lots of listeners aren't that familiar. Could you just kind of de define some terms quickly sure. for us? What does Islam mean? So um, what's cool about Arabic is that there's a lot of root words that are all kind of linked, right? So Islam is also linked to the word salam also, right? And there's an idea that Islam is basically a religion predicated on um, submission, right, which is to Allah. And by Allah, what we mean is God. And when Muslims sometimes say, la ilaha illallah, which is sometimes translated as there's no God but Allah, we're really emphasizing the idea that we believe that there is only one God, Allah, and that while some people may have different names, we believe that there's just one God. And that's an important point because even though people love to say that Jews, Muslims, and Christians are monotheists, I think you and I both know that there are some people who view Jesus as God also, right? Mm -hmm. And in Islam, that's a very important distinction is that we don't believe that God can have children, nor do we believe that something created God. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's I mean, a you, so you wouldn't believe so you wouldn't believe in the Trinity. We like don't believe three in the Trinity. One God. And yeah. Yeah, so that a, a saying that from comes from Quran is lam yalid walam yulid, which means he neither begets nor is begotten. Mm -hmm. Right. And that in that one line alone, it kind of negates the idea of a Trinity. It negates the idea that Jesus is the son of God. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that's very important for us. The key part about being Muslim is the idea of 
submission. The idea that sometimes we say in Arabic, Hasbiyallahu, which is I, Allah is enough, right? That, and then when we pray, I just finished praying in my office like an hour ago. We pray five times a day. And again, the prayers are a reminder that God is in control and he is going to decide who we marry. He's going to decide where we get a job. So it's funny when people sometimes say, I can't believe you moved to Buffalo. It's so cold. But my response is, I didn't move to Buffalo. God sent me to Buffalo. <laughs> like I was supposed to come to Canisius. And I'm grateful. I love teaching here. I have great students. The same way I was supposed to go to Gonzaga or supposed to marry my wife. Like I, I really feel that God's love is felt all those places. And I'm most grateful for my family that even though I converted from Hinduism to Islam, I have a very loving set of parents and my sister and so many other people. And I'm really grateful for that family. So Yeah, and the, the word Allah is simply the Arabic word for God, correct? Yes. Because I know even 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 like Christians who speak Arabic, like I have a friend who's a Coptic Christian. He's he's from Egypt and he speaks Arabic. Yeah. He calls God Allah. So that's not like a special name. Right. Exactly. That, you know, Christians don't use. It's just it's just the. the yeah. And then Arabic I'm glad you brought that up because I think I've also been doing, you know, I, I'm grateful. One of the things I'm really grateful for is when I was an undergrad at Purdue, I did a minor in Jewish studies. And that is, I think, being highly relevant right now yeah. because in my own way, and we can talk about that in my own classes. I'm really trying to fight anti-Semitism mm -hmm. by teaching students about Judaism, Jewish history, et cetera. And I think it is kind of ironic that a Muslim is the one doing it, but I think that's why that matters. But yeah. what I was going to say was, is that in Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke, right? I believe that's, we can concur on that is yeah. that the word for God is also Allah or Allah. Hmm. And I think I a lot of Christians don't, I mean, the sad part is most modern depictions of Jesus have him looking like Barry Gibb. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is unfortunate because yeah. if you look at, mm -hmm. I think the, there's a sixth century depiction of Jesus and he has darker complexion and darker yeah. hair. And if you look at Ethiopian Orthodox depictions of Jesus, he's black. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, that's a side topic, but I just wanted to say that, yeah, I think Allah or Allah goes back a long time as a name for God. Yeah. I wanted to ask uh, one of probably the most controversial terms in Islam is this concept of jihad. Sure. And I was wondering if you could, I've heard it explained a few different ways, but sure. I'm wondering how you would explain that. Cause I yeah. think most people associate it with extremist terrorism sure. sort of thing. So I'm glad you brought that up too, because I wanted to say something that's going to come up later is I think the difficulty even in this conversation is I'm going to say how I perceive these things to be what I've learned. And then someone who says they're Muslim is going to commit some act of violence in the future. And then people are going to be like, well, I heard Sham Sriram say jihad was this, and then this guy did this, right? So I think that's, that's one problem also, is that these terms are constantly abused by people who call themselves Muslim, right? That's yeah. the other problem. So, and I, and the, sa the same thing happens in Christianity. Like people oh, will sure. call something a, a crusade or they'll talk about God's wrath. And it's like, I don't think you understand the biblical sense of God's yes. wrath. Or they'll, they'll talk about um, like just war. And like they have a very anemic sense of what just war theory actually sure. entails and what the church actually teaches about just war. So I, I very much associate with, sure. with that. People misrepresenting. I mean, yeah. You probably heard about this, but at the World Cup in Qatar or Qatar, as they say in the U.S., mm -hmm. 
they had to expel some English fans who showed up in Crusader gear. Wow. I'm just like clueless. Yeah. Anyway. No, know, the, know the room, guys. <laughs> know the room, right? <laughs> um, so I, the way that I understand jihad is a struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a struggle to wake up in the morning for prayer, which is an especially difficult one to wake up for. And I would say in a Muslim setting that that was my jihad. Right. And I know that I'm doing a national or internationally interview with you, but that's how I feel. Like if I can't wake up in the morning for prayer, I would say that is my jihad. That is my struggle. If I'm not able to wake up to eat before sunrise during Ramadan, I would say that is my jihad. Mm -hmm. If I feel like I'm mean to my mom on the phone and I feel regret, I would say that that's my jihad. Right. The thing is, I don't use the term widely. Because of this very thing, as you said, it's the, yeah. the word has been misused to mean war, holy war, infidels, killing this, this, whatever. Everyone yeah. who sees lone survivor thinks or American snipers like uh, jihad. Mm-hmm. And I, the way I understand it is struggle. And I can just honestly tell your audience, I can go three months, six months without ever hearing a Muslim use the word jihad. Mm-hmm. We just don't use it, right? It's yeah. not something that comes up. It's like... What I tell my people, my students, don't go up to Indian people and say namaste, right? <laughs> no matter what your yoga teacher told you, right? Because we don't even do it. I don't go up yeah. to anyone. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a couple parallels with what you've talked about that I, I want to point out are, are similar in some ways to to Catholicism and then we'll jump into the Hunger Games and, sure. and all that. So when you were talking about the idea of, of jihad, which is used by some extremists to justify violence, but for kind of average Muslim like you is, you know, the strut, like the interior spiritual struggle. Right. There's a similar thing in uh, Ephesians uh, book of the Bible, chapter six, where St. Paul is talking about putting on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And people who like love guns love to like get that tattooed on them or like put on the back of their car, or their truck or something. Uh, but the next sentence, he's like, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, blood um, but against like the, the dark powers of the world. And so he said, we start talking about this armor. He's like, put on the breastplate of like righteousness and the sword of truth. Like he's using like a, a military image, but he's specifically pointing away from a military use. He's saying, no, your sword is going to be truth. Your breastplate, your armor is going to be righteousness. And, but so many people use it in a way that is counter to the original understanding. So, uh, you were talking about praying five times a day. Now this is not prescribed for every Catholic, but many Catholics and, and, and priests and nuns and, and, and deacons all around the world pray something called the liturgy of the hours, which is, uh, depending on your commitment level, you can do it three times a day, five times a day, or seven times a day. And it's a, it's a similar sort of thing where all around the world, Christians are praying the same sort of prayer. So it's, it's a, it's a similar sort okay. of practice and fasting and, and so forth, like you sure. said. So, um, and but, I have, uh, in, uh, I have a couple of friends, including my friend, Skylar Kovic. I also want to name drop him. He, um, is a very strong Catholic. And he and his wife, Teresa, um, are very devout Catholics. And to my knowledge, I think they belong to something called the Order of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, And they very deeply believe in a lot of the things that you're talking about and their faith is important to them. I'll just say that even though they are very different, I've always felt that Catholicism and Islam actually had a lot in common in terms of the tradition 
and yeah. doing things in a certain order. I really yeah, don't yeah. know another religion that has that level of devotion in terms of like a certain amount of order. So I want to acknowledge that also. Yeah. And the, or, the Orthodox Church as as well is probably right up right up there, yeah. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. I, th I think it's the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. That yes. might be what it is. That's like uh, the, they go go to like the old pre-Vatican II Latin mass. Yes. Um, the women wear the veils. It's like yeah, the, I went like to my yeah. Skyler's wedding was at a Latin mass church in Camarillo, California. Nice. It was a very, very confusing cool. service, but I'm glad I was there. <laughs> it was like high but, mass, low mass, yeah. high, and I was totally confused. My, my first okay. traditional Latin mass, I felt very much the same, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But once you've gone a few times, you, you, it's it's a little more makes a little more sense. All right, yeah. so uh, the Hunger Games. If you don't know what the Hunger Games are, uh, the Hunger Games was a book that came out in uh, I think it was two thousand eight. Yeah, so the Hunger Games, and then Catching Fire, the sequel in two thousand nine, Mockingjay in two thousand ten, uh, Suzanne Collins, and I had just heard about these books when they first came out, and me and my wife. I had just gotten married when they came out and so we read like we burned through the whole series and then the movies came out we watched all of those the prequel came out just a few years ago uh, the ballad of songbirds and snakes i read that I, i've been i've been re-listening to it on audiobook the last few days kind of preparing for this episode and uh it's become one of the you know biggest movie franchises and book franchises ever and i remember when i first was reading the hunger games i went to like suzanne collins website which doesn't exist anymore i had to use like the internet time machine to go back and find this because i remembered this this stuck in my head what she used to say on her website like 10 years ago is she said that her works quote explore the effects of war and violence on those coming of age and i always remember like huh I, that was in the back of my mind as i was reading all the books like the effects of war and violence on katniss and i don't think this comes through especially if you read uh, if you just watch the movies, but like in the books, like Katniss kind of goes nuts a little bit from like all that she's experienced in, in the Hunger Games. So that just in the back of my mind, I've always thought like this, this series is a lot deeper than a lot of people give it credit for. Before we dive into some of the themes, uh, is there anything artistically about the books or the movies that, that you love? So I want to acknowledge I haven't read the books. Okay. That's um, fine. But maybe this will motivate me to do so. Like it's like when I got married, I had never seen any of the, I'd seen only two of the Harry Potter movies, but mm -hmm. then I sat down with my stepson and we watched all of them. Right. Nice. So yeah. um, we have a Harry so Potter I, episode too. So. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And I loved your, by the way, before I forget, I loved the episode on Handmaid's Tale. Oh, thank um, you. I really enjoyed it. So, um, so I want to say like, I love science fiction and I love, like, I love Blade Runner. Right. Okay. And I love Blade Runner 2049 and the reason I bring that up is there's a certain aesthetic watching the movies again, like catching up with the summaries and all of that, that I really liked. Um, so you're just asking about thematically, right? Uh, artistically, like just artistically. what do you like about the movies and the, the story? And yeah, yeah, I think the story is really profound as I was like kind of watching it again. I'm really glad you invited me to do this because it made me realize how much that it's not just about Islam, but as you said, there is... A there is a retelling here with Israel and Palestine that we're going to probably get into. I just think that there, I don't think all the movies are as good as the first one, mm -hmm. um, like seeing it again. But at the same time, there's an aesthetic that's really powerful. That's very kind of Lord of the Flies-esque, mm -hmm. but also Orwellian. I think 1984 is in like the top five books ever written. And the that fact book. that it was written in 1949. Yeah. So... 
Um, I just think they're just beautifully made. And as you're right, the garishness, the makeup, the ostentatiousness of the capital versus the districts. Um, it was very interesting. So what, what are your favorite themes about it? So I love that it's kind of it's got these kind of classical mythology underlying it. Like she says that she was inspired by the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, where the the I think it was the cat, the king of Crete every year would send seven youths into the labyrinth to be hunted by the Minotaur. Uh, and so there's just a lot of like Greco-Roman stuff that is kind of laced throughout the book so the uh, people's names from the capital tend to be roman uh cato coriolanus Cinna. district 13 names tend to be more greek like plutarch uh there's this whole idea of like gladiators in the arena uh, even the name of the country pan am comes from that famous phrase about uh, the roman empire and why it fell pan am at circumstances that it was bred in circuses that the the roman empire supposedly fell because they got too opulent they were too concerned with just you know, they're bred in their circuses and that's why they, right. the, they started to weaken and decline. Um, I really think it's a brilliant modern commentary, reality TV, uh, f- the fashion industry, plastic surgery, um, the use of smart weapons, the use of medicine, the use of weapons of mass destruction. It really hits on a lot of these different themes. I used to teach a, an ethics and morality course when I was a high school teacher. And I feel like you could do that whole course through the hunger games it yeah was just, i agree so many big big questions i, I find myself I, I love to bring like big epic books like lord of the rings and brandon sanderson and dune and that sort of thing and we've done episodes on all those things um but I, I find myself i know this was written for like young adult audience high schoolers i wish the books were like 500 pages rather than like 300 pages yeah. i want a deeper world you know and that's that's just the book nerd english major in me um but yeah, uh, the love triangle between Gail and, and Peta and Katniss, you know, this this happened like right around the same time as Twilight. So that seemed a little kind of hackneyed at the point. It's right. like, all right, you got Peta, the, the you know, the boy next door. And then you got Gail, who's like the dark brooding guy is a little more dangerous and rough around the edges. You know, it's 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 a little bit Twilight, but. You know, it is it is what it is. Well, it doesn't bother me too much. <laughs> I will also say that that was one of the only things I didn't like about the Harry Potter progression oh, yeah. is in the later movies. It was all like Hermione's confused feelings to Ron and this. And it was about crushes and who like and it was just like it, it's interesting to watch them as an adult, because I yeah. imagine when people watch them at the time, they were like this is weird. Like, like <laughs> it just I feel like that part was a little bit stretched out. But I, I agree. Yeah. I could see. Yeah. I see the Twilight connection, too. (laughs) So let's talk about how this relates to our modern world. And in the news right now, of course, there's the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and then Israel's response uh, in the bombardment and invasion of Gaza and the Gaza Strip. So the Hunger Games really talks about this theme of a cycle of violence where the capital was attacked by the districts right and then the districts were subdued by the capital and started this you know grotesque hunger games as a way of revenge to punish the districts and keep them in subjugation but then the whole hunger games trilogy is about this revolution of the districts against the capital again and it just seems like well you killed my people so now we're killing your people and we're killing your people and back and forth and, and and revenge and i can't help 
but see parallels to our modern world in you know russia and ukraine and right. uh, especially what's going on in the the holy land yeah. right now so i i guess like how do you understand what's going on right, right. now in Israel and yeah. Palestine? Fair enough. Um, before I say that, I wanted to mention one thing um, about Catholicism again, mm-hmm. before I come back here. When I was watching the summary of the first movie again, it reminded me where um, Katniss takes her sister's place. Mm-hmm. And do you know what that reminded me of? That reminded mm-hmm. me of the story of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Oh, yeah. Who took the life of someone at Auschwitz, who took the place of someone. And then that man was, uh, came when he was, when St. Maximilian was canonized by Pope John Paul II, that mm-hmm. man was there. But I, 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 I'll tell you, till about t- seven or eight years ago, did I learn really that there's like a saint for almost everything among for Catholics? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And that St. Maximilian is the saint of intra- uh, uh, IV drug users. Because he oh, was yeah. killed by acid because he, ref- he he led people in prayer. And I just think that story. So I thought of that, of Katniss taking Prim's place as what St. Maximilian did when he took the place of that man in Auschwitz and died in yeah. his place. How many yeah, of us I- could make that sacrifice? So even though I don't worship him as a saint, mm-hmm. I deeply admire what he did. Yeah, and yeah, so we so Catholics we would use the word venerate, like we honor venerate, him as yeah. a saint rather rather than worship and we we would ask for his intercession. We right. believe that he can pray for us just like sure. any friend can pray for anybody else. Yeah. Um but it's interesting. So Saint Maximilian Kolbe, he's a Franciscan, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of Saint Francis of Assisi back in like twelve nineteen, during the fifth crusade, traveled to the Sultan of Egypt and tried to like convert him. And the Sultan was kind of like, who's this guy? Okay. This seems ridiculous, but sure. I'll hear what you have to say. And like the Sultan and St. Francis spent like three days together talking about theology and philosophy. And eventually he's, the Sultan was like, well, I'm not converting, but, uh, you're pretty cool, Francis. And, and ever since that day, there's been, like uh, the Franciscans have almost been like Catholic ambassadors to Islam and all the holy sites in Jerusalem. Yeah. The, like kind of the, the Catholic entourage uh, who, who manages like the, the Catholic responsibilities of those sites are Franciscans to this day wow. uh, because of that. So St. Maximilian Kolbe was a Franciscan. So that's, that's, I that, love that. that. And cool. I just, something just occurred to me that I want to share. And it, I never knew this till today. And I'm 44 years old. I was born at St. Francis hospital. <laughs> in Evanston, Illinois. There you go. My sister was born at St. Joseph Hospital. I was born at St. Francis. So I'm like, uh, oh my God. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, to your bigger question. Yeah, what's what's going on right now in the Middle I mean, East? Like how how do you see it? That's a big question. These are big questions. Um well first I want to acknowledge that like I think that not to be trite or banal and like that whole Burt background, what the world needs now is love, right? Um, I want to acknowledge how much people in Israel are hurting and how many people have still been kidnapped and the shock of all of those things. I want to acknowledge that, right? Because I don't want anyone to die, all right? I want to be clear about this, right? Um, And yet at the same time, Israel's response in Gaza is so exponentially larger than what has happened. 
And I just saw like um, a, a metric that looked at the number of children killed by conflict and the number of children who have been killed in Gaza in 30 days is more than the number of children that were killed in Iraq in the entire U.S. invasion or in the entire Afghan war. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's, it's just a it's just a staggering number of people. So I think right now, like and I'm not saying this necessarily because I'm Muslim or whatever, but when you look at when people talk about genocide, right, when you look at the 1948 Genocide Convention, which was crafted by a Polish lawyer named Rafael Lemkin, when you look at what is considered the what defines genocide, and I know there are people watching this who are going to be very unhappy, what I see the Israeli army doing in Gaza right now, I see it as genocide, mm. right, which is the intent to kill a whole or in part a people and also to stamp out their means of having more children also. Mm. I don't. I, I, I think targeting children, targeting hospitals is being done on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I'm seeing right now. As far as the bigger context, the bigger context is that Israel is a sovereign nation. It's a country. It has well-defined borders. And in general, its sovereignty is respected by the rest of the world. But Palestine is a territory inside Israel, and Palestinians do not have their own country. They are not seen as independent, and they are essentially landlocked by a larger country that not only claims that, like this kind of battle, like who was first? Were you like that Abbott and Castello, who's on first, right? Who was here first? We were here. We were here. This going back and forth, I mean, the land, I'm not... I want to be clear, like, I believe that it is Palestinian land, but I also believe that Israelis have their land as well. So when people say, oh, there are two sides, I don't think that's fair to make a dichotomy because in this case, Israel controls the borders. It controls the movements of where people can go. I mean, we mm-hmm. just saw it happen a few weeks ago. They ordered people to flee south and then they mm-hmm. bombed the escape route. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was an incident like this that happened over 100 years ago in India, in Punjab. It's a very infamous incident called Jallianwala Bagh, where a large number of people in I think it was the city of Amritsar in North India had amassed. And then the British showed up and blocked the only exit. And then when people were fleeing, they were all gunned down or knifed down or cut down. And that's what this kind of reminded me of. Yeah. So to. Provide so first of all, thank you, thank you for your your perspective. And I I think as one as a Christian, and you know who grew up reading about King David and Jesus walking through Jerusalem, and um, you know and you know we consider you know the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, as part of our scriptures. So sure. I think as a Christian, I naturally have a great affinity for the Jewish people um, and for the nation state of Israel generally, like we tend to think of them as one of the good guys and somebody who generally is, uh, tends to be, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of centrist, but I, I'm definitely more conservative generally. I think I, I also tend to just like, that's, that, that's my bias. And so what I, so certainly I, I would say, you know, you don't want to be bombing hospitals. You don't want to be bombing civilians, you know, and in Catholic teaching, one of the things of one of the parts of just war is one non-combatant immunity. So you're not allowed to just kill non-combatants. Um, 
and two, this idea of proportionality that you should respond proportionally to a attack. That's a, a, an attack. That's also part of just war theory. Um, so if you know somebody attacks you, you can't just like decimate their entire population. You you need to be proportional. It's kind of like the the from again from the Old Testament the idea of an eye for an eye, not two eyes for right. an eye. And and that that's actually something that it says in the in the Hunger Games prequel as the reason that they had the Hunger Games is the idea to keep the districts in line. Is like if you and and Snow Coriolanus Snow who becomes the president, right. he even says this like if you hit us, we're going to hit you back twice as hard. And in the Old Testament, that idea of an eye for an eye is supposed to be a limit on retribution that you can't hit you can't take out two two eyes if they took out your eye it's supposed to be a limit on that and then in the new testament we see jesus saying like if somebody slaps you on the cheek give them your other cheek right, right? and so jesus has a very anti-violence approach even though they were under a brutal regime yeah. of the romans occupying them and so you don't really see in catholicism this art you know, in practice, you often see Catholics and Catholic countries going to war, and even the Pope and the Papal States through the Middle Ages sometimes went to war. But you don't see a theological like justification, right? Like the Crusades were technically called a, a pilgrimage, you know. Um, and there's like war can be just, but it can never really be a good. Like war always involves some evil, um, and so absolutely shouldn't be bombing bombing civilians and 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 that sort of thing but kind of from the traditional conservative perspective israel is a sovereign nation this was a terrorist attack they sure. have a right to defend themselves sure. and the uh palestinians in gaza are you know this is kind of they've they've built tunnels they've taken hostages they uh they launch rockets from hospitals from places like that so they're kind of, kind of like the human shield idea and in israel has in some cases prior to this tried to show some restraint like before they bomb a building they'll like knock what they call knock on the roof first so they'll like launch a dud to warn like hey you got like 10 minutes to get out they'll call places and say hey your place is about to be bombed and sometimes the the people inside their stories of them saying no we want you, we want you to kill us so it looks bad on the news like even though there's children here we want that to look bad on the news and so and the idea that so the conservative response to the idea that it's a, a genocide again i would absolutely say it's 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 terrible that they're not honoring proportionality they're not honoring non-combatant immunity but um the idea that it's a genocide i would like the the conservative response to that would be well 20 percent of the nation of israel is arab palestinian and so it's not that they're trying to wipe out a people, but that they're trying to use whatever means necessary to defend themselves. If it was a genocide, they'd be going after, you know, Palestinians in their own country. And I've also heard the argument, I don't know what I think about this, because um, I'm just not educated enough to know, that the idea that, like, Palestinians aren't a ethnic group separate from Arabs. And again, this is just an argument I've heard. I don't, I don't know enough to be able to evaluate this, but like there's no Palestinian language. They speak Arabic. There's no Palestinian religion. They're mostly Muslims, some Christians, etc. There's never been a nation there called Palestine. There are many Arab nations in that area, but one Jewish nation. And so it's not like Israel is launching a war against every Arab nation around them. Um, so those, those would be some of the responses I hear that um, 
try to justify Israel's response. And again, I'm, I'm still kind of figuring out where I, sure. I fit on all this. Um, but I think as someone who says that I believe 100% everything that the Catholic Church teaches, obviously I condemn terrorism and, and kidnapping right, right. like Hamas, but also I have to look at their response where they are killing thousands of people in the last month. And if I say I'm pro-life, you know, and that's something that we as, as Catholics are, are, are big on, it's not just pro-life for babies in the womb, although that's a big deal. We're also pro-life for Palestinian children sure. and for Jewish hostages. Like, uh, so anyway, <laughs> I was, I'm just right. trying, trying to f flesh this out. And all, yeah. Can I also say that I don't know if you've yeah, done please. this before, but I am mm -hmm. totally open to doing a part two with you if need be. Okay. Yeah. If there's space for that or this thing, I'm totally down because, you know, how much... Okay. It's already 10, 10. So I know there's already so much. So I've finished all my chores and things for the day. Yeah. Um, I, so look, you said a few things. Let me just comment on one thing. I would like to go back to the hunger games because yeah, I think there's some please. interesting analogies there that I want to go yeah. through. Um, again, I, I don't, in some parts of my life, I see myself as conservative. Also, I think that in general, Muslims are more, shall we say, oriented on what's called family values. Mm -hmm. And I think, and you might know this, that till 9-11 or till the 2000 election, Muslims in the United States were pretty solidly Republican, mm. right? It was the invasion of Iraq and then kind of changing criminal, like pointing fingers at brown people. I think that's when things started to change. Yeah. Um, and then I think there was a shift. There's been shifts and all of that as well. Um, so I want to acknowledge that, that, the, that, and, and I will also acknowledge, I want to put this out there that I don't know how many people know this, that Muslims right now in America are kind of torn about who they're going to vote for, even for president. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of disdain with the Biden administration in many ways which I think is news is, is, is making like the ears of conservatives sometimes a little bit warm and fuzzy. But then at the same time, I think sometimes Muslims are kind of feeling like, well, where the Republican Party may we may agree with social norms and social values because there's some interesting alliances developing in the U.S., for example, about homeschooling. Right now, yeah. between conservative Muslims and Christians coming together and being like, we should be more in charge of the curriculum that our kids are exposed to. So yeah. we're seeing some strange bedfellows as the term goes. Right. But then in other ways, I think Muslims sometimes feel like, who do we support politically that represent our values economically, socially, but also maybe policy wise? Mm -hmm. um, I want to mention one thing that you said just to offer something is. I have also heard this argument. People said that there's never been a Palestinian country, yeah. but there is like Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Jordan and all these countries. I don't know if that comparison is very fair because there have historically been always some communities that never have their own homeland. OK, yeah. mm -hmm. so Palestine has never they've never had their own sovereign land. Right. That was just theirs. I mean, like all of this whole region, France and England have, you know, chopped like the show chopped. They've chopped up mm -hmm. the area with various agreements and this and this, whatever. But then I also think, for example, of the Kurdish people never had their own country. Mm. Right. I think of the Hmong people who have never had their own country. Right. And I think historically there are some groups that kind of remain stateless. I think that the, for Palestinians is this feeling that 
this land, they have, you know, we're talking about families that go back seven, eight, 10 plus generations. They've always felt that this was their land. And for a long time, even though Jewish people were moving there, starting not just after Theodore Herzl, but then in the 1930s and 40s, I still think there was a feeling like we can do this together. But if you anyone who looks at maps of the loss of land, of the Palestinian land, it's I mean, someone may disagree with this analogy, but it seems to me very similar to the loss of Native American land in the U.S. Like if you look at over time, what was Native American land versus what it is now? I think. Palestinians sometimes see that as, okay, now you have giving us these little places, but then even there, right, you have settlers who come and take their land back as well. And often these settlers yeah. are from like the Bronx and Staten Island and they go to Israel and Israel's like, oh, you can just go and take that house over there. That's your house. And then I think it just, I think that's the problematic part I find. I'm saying is, look, all I'm saying is that if we agree that Everyone has the idea of life, liberty, property. If yeah. we agree that, as you said, I, I love your point, Mike, about the 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 sanctity of life. Mm, and this yeah. is something I felt before, which is like what I see now, and my wife and I talk about this also, I just feel like the way the media covers it and other things, it just seems that Muslim life is not as valuable as Jewish life. Mm. And that's what I'm seeing right now in the world, and it makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah, because... You know, from a, a Catholic perspective, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Sure. We're all fundamentally equal before the eyes of God. We are, uh, we believe in a God who has no partiality. You know, he's not he. In, in fact, if he has any partiality, it's a preferential option What is what we call it, a preferential option towards the poor and the vulnerable and the weak. And what I think is so hard in the issue of Palestine and Israel is there's an argument to be made. And again, like, I don't really know what to think about all this like i've 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 done a lot of reading and a lot of like podcast and youtube listening over the past few weeks but like i'm again i'm de that doesn't make me an expert i've never like studied this i've never been to israel you know i've 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 um have a few jewish friends a, a couple m muslim acquaintances and some some former students but like what i find so difficult about this situation is there's an argument to be made that the Israeli people are the indigenous people who have had their land stolen because there was the Jewish diaspora going back to Babylonian times, to the Roman times, and then the, the pogroms in Eastern Europe, and then, of course, the Holocaust, and that the return to Israel and the, the Zionist movement was an effort to give these this displaced people their land back, albeit like a millennia or two later, you know, but then as they're they're coming back, they often are more educated, more wealthy than the people that they're moving in next to, and oftentimes even displacing. So there's a certain gentrification happening in Palestine as these Jewish people are coming coming back even though they never lived there their great ancestors lived there um and then there so there's the the jewish muslim divide there's the immigrant native divide both people feel oppressed both people feel like we have been subjugated and there's you know been violence and atrocities on both sides and so for me it, it's really hard to understand like 
just where do we go from here? Sure. <laughs> Who started it? You know, that's the question. Well, <laughs> I, I want to add, it? I'm going to complicate this even further. There's an mm. intra-Jewish divide, mm. right? Not all Jewish people support the state of Israel either. So I just went sure. to the, the, the Palestine protest. I was there last mm. weekend in D.C., the, they say the largest pro, pro-Palestine protest in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say 100,000, 100,000 or more. But there were Orthodox Jewish groups there yeah. in support of Palestinian people because they, and there are, we know this, the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidim, the Haredi, they often don't support Israel because they see Israel as a political invention and they feel that their understanding is that one day God will deliver to them a country or a place, but they see Israel as an artificial political thing. Just give you an example. I don't know if you know this. My students and I have been learning about it this semester. There's a city or a town like 50 miles north of New York City called Kiryas Yoel, which is an ultra-Orthodox Jewish town in Orange County, New York, where they have a dress code and they have large families where the boys all go to yeshiva and the women do other jobs. The average family size is like nine to ten children. And it's an Orthodox Jewish shtetl, like a, a what the Yiddish word for a ghetto, but it's like a town. It's an Orthodox Jewish town. And they often are very unsupportive of things in Israel because they view, again, this different distinction between... Israel as political Zionism, and then what they see as religious Zionism. So I'm just saying, is if you add that onto it as well, yeah, can you imagine sure, going sure. to a Gaza rally and seeing Orthodox Jewish men and boys, and then people being like, oh, but you're Jewish, and then they're saying, oh, we don't support that as well. So, mm-hmm. and, and also, let's be honest, I don't know if you've been following the news, but there have been a lot of like, um, I think the group is called, I wrote it down here, Jewish Voice for Peace. A lot of people have been arrested protesting. These are Jews protesting Israel's treatment. So I think that also adds to the complexity as well. Yeah, for sure. In, in as I would assume, there's many in the Muslim community that, you know, obviously don't agree with Hamas and sure. Um, and those sorts of things. So I, I, I would say that there's, there's a recognition amongst both calmer heads in both religions that there's, there's, there's gotta yes. be a better way. Yes. And I think, so one thing you mentioned before I wanted to talk about, we talked about how many Muslims in the United States were pretty squarely conservative before 9-11 and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I just wanted to point out that uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are generally considered in Catholic circles, at least among like theologians, that were not just wars. Like maybe the Afghanistan war was had a just cause. Sure. Like we were attacked and we could respond to eliminate that threat. But in then in the actual implementation was often not just. So in just war theory, there's these two categories what they call uh, justice in war and justice to war. So there you have to have certain criteria to just to go to war. And then once you're in the war, what are just practices within that war? And I think some people would some Catholics would make the argument that the Afghanistan war, we had a just cause to go to war, but then once we were there, you know, stayed for 15 years, killed lots of civilians, like there were lots of things about it that were unjust. And then I think most people, and I think Pope Benedict even even like wrote some letters about this uh, back in the day, that the Iraq war was not seen as a just war right. and killed, again, killed, killed lots of 
uh, you know, civilians. And we, we see what a mess Iraq turned into. Right. Because um, a lot of times I had a professor one time use this analogy for war. He said, war is kind of like doing surgery with a spoon. It's just not a very good way to do what you're trying to do. It's a very blunt instrument. And so a lot of times you end up doing more harm than good. You know, if I have a little mole on my arm that I think might be cancerous, I'm not going to dig it out with a spoon, right? It's better (laughs) to just leave it there. And even if I have something really seriously wrong, if I have a heart condition, like a spoon's not going to be able to fix that. Or, you know, maybe if the situation gets really bad, maybe the best option that we, the, the least bad option that we have left is to try to go in with a spoon, but it's not going to be a right. really a good option. And that's kind of this pr- perspective that Catholicism has on war right. is that it's, it's always going to be ugly. Right. And most of the time it's not just, um, um, so I just, I yeah, want to mention ahead. one more thing if I can, before we go back Please. to hunger games yeah. mm-hmm. or two things, I want to just quickly say that, um, you know, um, I think what has been lost, and I think you hinted at it as well, the, the unjustness of Iraq, is that I want to be clear about something, right? I think Saddam Hussein is an effing monster, okay? Yeah. What he did to the Kurdish people alone, right? He'll be slowly roasting in hell, okay? But the thing is that by the U.S. going to Iraq and the whole WMDs and all of that, the U.S. created basically a civil war, right? And has divided the region. And you could argue that a lot of other issues in that region, some people even say that what happened in Syria later was a bit de- like that, that kind of destabilized the region in some way. So I want to acknowledge that, right? Yeah. I also just want to mention something just to clarify for anyone as well is I also just hope that people understand that. And again, maybe this is another conversation too, is that I think that one should be able to criticize Israel's policies and not get labeled this term like that somehow that means that you hate Jewish people, right? Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who knows me and knows my scholarship and knows what I do in my classes and all of that, yes, I'm Muslim, but in so many areas of my life, I am pro-Jewish and I support my students every year tell me that they learn more about Judaism from my class than any other professor they've ever had. And I've done that consistently over my career. So I just want to put it out there. And I've I said this recently, my students and I wrote an op-ed where we said that we don't want to believe in these false tautologies, right? Like yes. what I mean is that I really believe that like, okay, I am pro-Muslim, but I am pro-Jewish also, right? Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. one doesn't offset the other, that you can love Palestinian people and you can also love Jewish people and there doesn't have to be a disconnect right there. And I want to mm-hmm. state that because inherently I, I love people. And I, as like you, I see people and I love God. And the beauty of our creation is that we get to be born into different tribes and nations and worship God together. So, first of all, I agree. I think you can you can criticize actions without criticizing a person's identity. And, and I, I think the same thing would would go for you know you could criticize like saudi arabia or you know any other kind of muslim-led country or a a terrorist organization who claims to uh you know has as kind of an extremist interpretation a violent interpretation of islam like you can criticize different institutions without being like an islamophobe you know like i think obviously islamophobia exists 
um, you know, hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism exists. Right. Um, but criticism of kind of popular organizations or institutions doesn't necessarily correlate to that. Um, you use the word tribes that God created us in different tribes and so forth. I feel like in Catholicism and Christianity, we believe in this thing called original sin that we have this original goodness. God created as good as in very good. It says in the book of Genesis, but it becomes corrupted and that's why we need to be saved. And so there's this, these things within us that become twisted and messed up. And one of those is these connections that we have with our tribe, our people. And it turns into what we often call tribalism where it's an us in a them and it's one of the most like fundamental parts of human psychology and human nature is we tend to divide things into this this tautology this dichotomy of it's a us and a them it's a simple binary it's a false binary and i think that's why we often find these discussions so frustrating is if it's a criticism of the israeli state it's like well you're one of them you're not siding with with the jews and there's probably even people listening right now that are thinking oh you know uh, you know, Sham or Mike, like they're clearly on this side or they're clearly on this side. And I know at least what I'm saying and what it sounds to me like what you're saying is like, we're on the side of humanity, right? right. Like we're on the side of, of, uh, of justice and love. And there's some violations of that going on right, right. now. And we're not here to say <laughs> they're, they're the bad guy. They're the bad guy or they're, they're doing it worse. They're doing it worse. Like there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now. How do we move forward? So that's my next question is what do we in the, in the hunger games, right? They eventually at the end, they get to winning by they win the war, you know, right. and there's this nice little epilogue at the end with Katniss and Peta and their kids and they, they win the war. They, they kill the bad guys. Um, and that's very common in American media, what's often called the myth of redemptive violence, that you, you win the war and then everybody's happy. You blew up the Death Star and then everything's all good. And there's a little twist at the end of the Hunger Games that I really like because when they finally win, spoilers, when they finally win the District 13 who kind of takes over the leadership, right. they say, well, we're going to have one final Hunger Games right. with the Capitals children. And... What Katniss ends up doing at the execution of President Snow, she's supposed to shoot him with an arrow. She kills. She ends up. She ends up shooting President Coin, and it ends up, um, kind of top. You know, it, it makes things go like a little nuts. But what they end up deciding is not to have that last Hunger Games. And Peta, I think Peta is like a terrible character in the movies, but he's like really badass and awesome in the books. He's like, he's kind of seen as wimpy in the movies, but he's like the best wrestler in the County in the books. Right. And he's like a very eloquent speaker. And he's kind of like where as Katniss is like the, the symbol as uh, the mocking Jay, where she represents, you know, freedom in the districts. He's like the voice that actually is able to articulate like this message right. of peace. And, um, so he's, uh, he's the one that is actually able to like convince people like, Hey, we don't want to do this hunger games. Like we just got to move forward, like forget about revenge. Right. And so I'm, I'm thinking of things from history, like Nelson Mandela in South Africa with the truth and reconciliation commission. I'm thinking about the Ulster project, which helped to bring together Northern Ireland, Protestant youth right. and Irish Catholic youth. Um, I'm thinking about 
efforts like this, uh, Mahatma Gandhi in, in India, trying to resolve things in a nonviolent way, Martin Luther King Jr. in America in this like huge organizational <laughs> task that was the efforts of the civil rights movement and um, the bus boycott and uh, the march in Washington. Like, how do we, what's the solution here? Like, how can we bring some of right. this to the current situation in Israel, Palestine. Right. I mean, okay. Um, I'll, I'll start at the backside and then um, go back to the Hunger Games because I had some commentary there that I thought was interesting about that too. Is well, first of all, I'll say that I think that there. I want to be clear. I think there have always been people in Israel, Jews in Israel, who have been very unhappy with the way that things have been the treatment of Palestinians, and this goes back a long time. So there has been always, I think, an undercurrent of resistance. And, you know, like right now, like I feel like um, one of my favorite comedians, podcasters is Mark Maron, right? And when David Bowie died, Mark Maron said, the hardest thing about our heroes dying is that our heroes die, right? Like, because we don't, when they're larger than life, we never see them going away. So I think that there's heroes being born every day in the last few weeks, that we're seeing now taking this on. I want to acknowledge that like, okay, tradition, historically, even 20 years ago, um, a book that I read as an undergrad at Purdue when I did my minor in Jewish studies was um, was by a writer named a Amos Oz, was an Israeli writer who had an organization called Shalom Akshav, which literally in Hebrew means peace now. I had to take two years of Hebrew to, for this minor. Um, and you know, I think even then, they're talking about from the 90s, right? Or even before, people were looking for peaceful solutions. And then there's a, I think he's was a former IDF soldier. I think his name is Benzi Sanders. He's been very public speaking out against what he's seeing. Um, I want to acknowledge there's a guy called Motaz Azaza, M-O-T-A-Z. And then his last name is A-Z-A-I-Z-A. And apparently he has 12.5 million followers now on Instagram and he is documenting what's happening in Gaza or Gaza daily. Um, I want to acknowledge that a lot of journalists have been killed. Palestinian journalists who have been trying to like speak truth to power. Uh, Mohammed Abu Hasira, he was killed with 42 members of his family in a missile strike. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that while we may not and I'm not Palestinian and someone who's Palestinian may take offense to this. And I apologize. As they say in Arabic, mit esef, I'm sorry, but I, there may not be one individual people at the level of an MLK or, you know, doing the work, but I yeah. think that in an odd twist, quoting Ronald Reagan, people who say that we don't have heroes don't know where to look. Yeah. He said that in his first inaugural in 1981, so I think in a weird way of bridging across the span here, they're like, did he just quote Reagan? Right. So I'm just <laughs> saying is that like, I think that there are Palestinian heroes being born every day because of circumstance. And I think that there's a lot of people speaking out for what they're seeing is not seeing what, like not seeing how they'd like it to be. And I think that there's a lot of people holding people accountable now as well. And I'm I, this is one advantage of social media is that we have a lot of people now that we can turn to, but that's also unfortunately, as you know, offset because there's a lot of fake news circulating around also. I had a question for you and it's gonna seem like it's kind of out of left field, but I promise it's gonna connect to the Hunger Games and what we're talking about with Israel and, and Palestine. 
what is briefly the Muslim view of human nature? Like in Christianity, there's kind of this classic divide between Catholics and Protestants where Protestants tend to see human nature as like totally corrupted, totally defiled. Luther said that like the human person is like poop covered in snow and the grace of the grace of Christ is like covered in snow. Whereas Catholics tend to see it more as like, we're good and we're still fundamentally good, but we are broken and in need of saving. But we're like, we're, you know, we're, we're, it's not as seen as, as, as totally as corrupted. Um, sometimes total depravity is the more reformed Calvinist view. Yeah. And I'm, curious what is the muslim view of human nature are we are we savages right, are right. we broken corrupted redeemable right. awesome what are we so that's a great question i don't think i've ever actually like been asked that or uh i'll say that so first of all muslims we don't believe in original sin right um we also of course don't believe i mean i want to be cl- and i think a lot of people don't realize this i mentioned it earlier like you cannot be muslim and deny the prophethood of jesus Okay. It's impossible. Like, in fact, one of the so there's five pillars of Islam, but there's also six articles of faith or Iman. And like recognizing the prophets is a key part of Islam, right? From Adam to Muhammad. Right. But in the middle, you have Musa or Moses, Ibrahim, Abraham, Ayub, Job, Isa, Jesus. Right. Like you if someone says I am Muslim, but I reject Jesus then I'm not in the business of what we call takfir, which is saying who is Muslim and who is not. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can fundamentally believe in Allah and believe in the Quran and reject thing because so much of the Quran centers also about Jesus or Isa as well. So mm-hmm. I want to acknowledge that, right? At the same time, we don't believe in the Trinity. We don't believe in original sin. And as to this question of like, are people born broken? I don't see it that way. I Muslim, the way that we understand is we are born to worship Allah, to recognize that Allah is the most merciful. Something we say daily is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. That, so this idea that there's 99 names of Allah, okay, and that each one, like Ar-Rahman is the merciful, you know, um, Al-Malik is the king, right? There's different names associated with him and each one is a different and I think there's some version of this in Christianity as well, that oh, each yeah, name for sure. recognizes some aspect of his his wondrousness, right? His all these encompassing things he's able to do. And yet there is a big emphasis in Islam about how, and we use this word in Arabic, nafs, N-A-F-S. The nafs, and you mentioned it earlier, the nafs are like the inner desires that F things up, right? Yeah. So the, what happens is, and but the only time of the year as Muslims that we believe where like, like where that, sh- so there's two things that Muslims have to worry about. One is our nafs, our desires get in the way, whether it's thinking about sex when we shouldn't be, when it's people who drink alcohol or do this or do that or whatever, or like I'm watching sports, I got to watch my team and then I miss a prayer time. Part of that is nafs. But part of that is we very much, very much are aware of the presence of shaitan or Satan. And a common thing that Muslims say daily is uh, in Arabic, we say something like it's A'udhu Billahi Mina Shaitani Rajim, which is, oh Allah, protect us from the influence of shaitan. Mm -hmm. So there's a notion that shaitan 
is out there trying to screw us up and mess us up. And the only time of the year that Muslims believe that shaitan cannot influence us is during Ramadan. Hmm. The belief in Ramadan is that shaitan is chained by Allah. So then what that means then is that if you have to wake up at before sunrise at sometimes 3.30, 4 a.m. to eat, if you don't wake up, you can't blame shaitan. This is your weakness as a person. Mm. Interesting. So if you don't wake up in the morning during Ramadan, you can't say, oh, shaitan messed me up. He whispered in my ear. You are weak. You are lazy. And that comes from the inside. So that's something we do believe. So it's a, how Catholics would describe that is, yes, we believe in Satan. And actually, we have a very similar prayer in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us, you know, deliver us from evil and save us, save us from the evil one. Right. We say that in the Our Father all the, uh, every time we pray it. We all, we believe that there is that temptation that that even Jesus was tempted by in the desert, Matthew four. Uh, but also there are these twisted desires that have been messed up. Like God created us perfect and good, like Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. But now that's become corrupted. And so, as Saint Paul says, we desire the things that we hate. I do the things that I hate. I don't know why I do them. I don't want to do those things. So, like an inordinate desire for 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 pleasure right. or for laziness, all those things. And we would call that one of the effects of original sin. Concupiscence is the is the fancy yeah. word. So it sounds like a a, a similar idea. Right. And um. The, so here's here's the reason I ask is because. In the Hunger Games, there's this constant discussion going on, and especially it comes out really strongly in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I'm really interested to see the movie when it comes yeah, out. Yeah, I just heard um, about that a song just came out for the new movie by yeah, Olivia Rodrigo. So I'm excited to yeah. watch it too. Yeah, there's a lot of music in it. Um, but the the book starts off with all these quotes from like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Rousseau, all these Enlightenment thinkers. Right talking about the social contract, talking about human nature. And there, Dr. Gall, who's kind of one of the, the big game makers, she's the big bad guy in this movie. And she basically, she's, she's a Thomas Hobbes type, type of person that thinks in our natural state, right, right. humans are savages, we are beasts. Yeah. And so we need these games to kind of channel the savagery into a way where we're at least limiting the damage. And that's kind of how Thomas Hobbes saw human nature and the state he's like right. in, a, in a state of nature people are just going to take what they want and we're selfish and so we need to establish these states with the social con contract so we at least accept we accept less freedom so that we're at least a little safer and but fundamentally we're corrupt and it seems like this is ultimately from from my perspective and i would say a catholic perspective is dehumanizing and i think that's what allows us to kill each other so right. easily and what allows people to say you know like hamas terrorists to say well we don't care if we kill babies and kidnap people and and and, and jews because they are subhuman they're right. not really people they're these savages and I, i'm sure there's people on the israeli side who say the same thing about palestinians it's like you know we tried um trading land for peace we've tried you know pulling our troops out of gaza in 2005 and what did they do they elected the terrorists and launched rockets at us anytime they get aid they just spend the money on rockets and they don't spend the money in, in tunnels and they don't spend the money on actually helping their people and so they they've shown us that they're not interested in peace they're just savages so what else are we going to do we got to just we got to just level everything at least to just protect ourselves mm -hmm. and so i feel like 
throughout the Hunger Games, there's this, and, and Katniss is struggling with this within herself. And like, do we even deserve to survive? Are we just these savages? And so that that's why I ask. And I think if I believe in anything. <laughs> I believe that there there really is some goodness within humanity. And I think this is one of the most fundamental Christians of Christianity is that God created us good. Yes, we're corrupted. Yes, we're, we're, we're tempted. Yes, we have these desires that lead us astray. Yes, there's this temptation of this enemy, the devil, these spiritual forces. Right. But fundamentally, there, there's goodness in us. Sure. And I I have hope that we really can see that in one another you can push aside this misguided tribalism and unite as the one tribe the one human family for the common good right. um but uh it's and now some people would say that's too idealistic and people would say well that's that's not going to work really the only way for israel to protect themselves is by basically leveling gaza and taking away hamas's ability to ever wage war again and I think there really is a, um, and also some people would say that, you know, uh, the Palestinians, their only recourse is with violence. How else are they going to, um, respond to this, you know, occupation of their, of their lands, this, this treatment by the IDF and so forth. And there's, uh, a researcher, her name's Erica Chenoweth, who has done, she did like the most comprehensive study on nonviolent action ever done. And she like did a survey of every yeah. conflict. Have you heard of this? I have, yeah. She did, she did a survey of like every conflict for the last hundred years and like basically ranked like how successful it was in terms of like establishing democracies, in terms of not having a civil war. And it turns out like the, the nonviolent conflicts were way more successful yeah, yeah, than I the violent conflicts. Now, yeah. yeah. And so, I think not only is this something that our faith teaches us that like you can turn the other cheek, you can do these radical acts of nonviolence and they really do transform people's hearts and speak to that goodness within. But there's actually some like social science to back it up that not only it's not this like pie in the sky, unrealistic, idealistic thing. It's actually way more effective in most cases than violent confrontation and violent regimes. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, there's lots of thoughts there. Look, I want to just read a verse from Quran that you you had asked in the the email you had sent me about some verses that I rely on. Yeah. I just want to share one that um, ironically, or I don't know if it's ironically is the right word, but it's a verse that is also referenced in Talmud, right? Like in uh, commentary on the Torah. Um, And it's actually the verse that is comes up in Schindler's List. There's a scene where like Liam Neeson is talking to Ben Kingsley's character and he says something like, we say that whoever takes one life, it's if you've taken all of mankind, whoever saves one life, it is he has saved all of mankind. But we have that in Quran, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is the 32nd chapter of the Quran. Um, I'll read it in English. It says, we decreed upon the children of Israel that whoever kills a soul, unless for a soul or for corruption, it is as if he had slain mankind entirely. And whoever saves one life, it is as if he had saved mankind entirely, right? So this is something that we do believe in. Like, And I want to acknowledge that like, because there's so much misinformation now about Islam and other things as well, there are a lot of people claiming to be Muslim who are doing a lot of things antithetical to the religion of Islam. 
You know, mm-hmm. there are so many people who have killed so many people in the name of Allah, right? It reminds me of that Rage Against the Machine song, like killing in the name of, right? Like very mm-hmm. much. Yeah. So I think that complicates understanding as well. When people kill in the name of God, then it leaves people like you and I who see ourselves as servants who are trying to do good, confused because we're sitting here, two different backgrounds coming together because of our humanity. And simultaneously, there are trolls on the internet who are going to try to put pin us against each other mm-hmm. and dehumanize, dehumanize me against you and vice versa. So I think that's the big challenge that Muslims face is people doing things that are un-Islamic, that are haram, that are forbidden, but then using Islam as the backup, right? And I think that's what's scary, right, about all of this is that people saying we have to kill this group. And I don't support that. But at the same time, I don't believe that Muslims should be held accountable for all the bad that Muslims do, just as I don't believe that you should be held accountable for every bad thing the Catholic Church has ever done. No one one would ever assume that you would be responsible. But I feel like Muslims are often put in this situation of we have to say publicly what we feel or how we feel or those we hold responsible. And I think that's insane. I can only speak for myself, right? I can't even Mm -hmm. speak for my wife or my parents. I can just speak for me and just provide Mm -hmm. some context. Yeah, I I feel like anytime we're like causing, we're we're, we're like imputing some sort of guilt for onto an individual for an entire group or onto an entire group for an individual, especially people in the past, like we're, we're running into real problems like the Jews killed Jesus. So now we're going to get the Jews. Like, I think that that sort of line of thinking of you, you know, you people did this to us a long time ago. Like it's that, it's that tribalism. And yeah, yeah, it just, there's a great book. If you haven't read it, it's called how fascism works by Jason Stanley. My students just read two chapters from it. And his whole Mm -hmm. second chapter is about this very thing, which is nationalists live on this idea of what's called the mythic past. You tell stories about how us, they did this. They took our land. They took our identity. So now we have to avenge great, great, great grandpa. And those mythic stories fuel nationalism. And I think that's kind of what's happening right now in this part of the world is that this is our land. No, this is our land. And not seeing people as human, you know, I think that's part of it as well. Um, so yeah, can, can I ask as... As a Muslim, like we, when you see groups like Hamas or Al Qaeda or um, that sort of thing, like do you see them kind of like how Christians would see like the Westboro Baptist Church? <laughs> you know, I like, think that's fair. To kind of see them as as the craziest, like they say they're with us, but they're not with us. Like that's 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 how we kind of see or, or like v- you know violent Christian groups. Yeah. That's how that's how I would see them. Is that kind of how you feel? I, I feel that way. I don't want to like, okay, I think there are some groups where it's very clear, easy to point fingers and be like, what they're doing Mm -hmm. is, you know, despicable and awful. Like I think of what ISIS or what it's called Daesh, like some people don't like sort of ISIS or ISIL, how they treated the Yazidi people, which are a non-Muslim religious minority in that part of the world. And the things they did to Yazidi women in particular, I mean, there's no grounds for it. Right. So I look at these, Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. I think, I've heard the analogy that just as Islam does not equal ISIS, Christianity does not equal the KKK. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've heard similar things. So I, I would agree with yeah. that. And I would also add on to that that 
yeah, I, I see I see the crazies as united in this misunderstanding of things. But I want to put this out there that these groups hate me probably as much as they hate anyone else. Because I'm not um, I'm not the they probably would not see me as the ideal kind of Muslim. All right. Yeah. Thank you. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not asking you to, like you, you were saying before, you feel like a lot of times all Muslims have to be like, Hey, we're not, we're not with them. So right. I wasn't trying to, like, no, ask no, you to I, justify yourself, but I just think that's probably a question that's on some people's minds. Sure, so yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate your, your willingness to, to share about this. Uh, this has been a longer episode than normal. And I think that's okay because uh, we've talked about a lot. Is there anything else about the hunger games that you think is uh, just, interesting or yes. helpful for us understanding the situation that you want to hit before we pull this in for a landing? Yeah. Um, let me mention a couple of things. One is, I, I don't, can you remind me which film I think is it that shows a clock spinning and everyone is in like a different catching fire. Yeah. So when I'm watching that, what I wrote down, Mike, one comment here is I wrote down the clock. I read what I wrote. The clock spinning reminds me of conflicts where it is impossible to say who is the good versus bad because of so many factions militia armies. So yeah. that's one thing I want to acknowledge. I also want to acknowledge that um, this is not from Islam. This is from political theory. I just want to quickly mention that there's a really infamous political theorist called Carl Schmitt, um, mm -hmm. who was considered actually the chief philosopher of the Nazis. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for years, nobody taught Carl Schmitt and he's having a resurgence, not because of nationalism, but people are having a conversation but one, and I wrote an article a few years ago, and I'm actually quoting my own article here, but I wanted to mention something about Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt came up with this idea, which he called the theory of the exception, which is that a sovereign leader, right, should be able to literally suspend the law when he wants and then kind of decide that there may be some groups that get the law and some groups that do not. And mm -hmm. I thought of this because that is President Snow. Yeah. And I thought Donald Sutherland does it perfectly. But and then it happens later, the whole thing where the rules keep changing. Right. Yeah. And then you don't know, like the fact that someone gets to decide what the rules are and the districts are then pitted against each other. That very much reminds me of this idea of the exception, the leader changing the rules that you're playing by. So you don't even know what the rules are anymore. So I want to acknowledge that I think there's a lot of that going on here as well. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Thank you. Yeah, those are, those are uh, interesting parallels. I often ask my guests at the end of the episode if there is a just kind of one takeaway from our conversation that you're going to leave. What, what's let's like your one yeah. your one con conclusion or thing you've learned or thing that you're you're leaving thinking about? Do you have one takeaway? I have uh, the one takeaway is that I think we would all do a lot better if we could have in depth conversations with someone who is very different from us and come yeah. to a common sense of humanity. Yeah. And I feel like we've never met. I hope we get to meet in person, but I think that this is awesome and I wish people did this more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's not possible unless people say yes. So thanks for saying yes. And and obviously the, the way that you lead your classes and live your life, like that's why Victoria recommended you to me because you know, you've, you're known to be that sort of person. Um, I think my final takeaway is just this idea that the, 
the tribalism is what gets us this, this twist that like, it's good when we can unite with the people that we love and the people that are like us, but then it, it gets twisted either by our temptations or by the devil or by our concupiscence, however you want to describe sure. it to this sort of us and them, us and them. And when we see the world in that sort of false binary, that's so often what leads to you know, political division in our country. It leads to you fighting with your mother-in-law. It leads to, you know, in the extreme cases, things like what we see happening in the Middle East right now. Agreed. So just that meditating on, for me, I'm going to be meditating on that idea of like, who am I othering? Who am I saying are the them? Who is the them to me? Sure. And that's something I'm going to take to prayer. And listeners, I would invite you to take that to prayer as well. At the end of my episodes, I often ask my guests to pray. And today we have kind of two different religious traditions represented and so i was going to ask if you would close in uh, a prayer in your manner and then i would close in a prayer in my manner sure. and listeners however you want to pray or not pray you can <laughs> pray along with us is that something you feel comfortable sure. with um awesome uh so i'm going to recite um surah al-fatiha which is the first chapter of the quran and muslims recite it multiple times daily um, i'm happy to share with you later i can email you the english translation and if you want to share it with sure. people that's fine so, okay, it's going to be in Arabic, but um, okay. it's just a, re a reflection about God's wonder and what he does for us. So, A'udhu billahi minash shaitani rajeem, bismillahi rahmani rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, ar-rahmani rahim, maliki yawmiddin, iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'een, ihdina siratul mustaqeem, siratul ladhina an'amta alayhim, qayril maqdubi alayhim, waladdaaleen. And the translation in English, in the name of God, the gracious, the merciful, praise be to God, Lord of the worlds, the most gracious, the most merciful, master of the day of judgment. It is you we worship and upon you we call for help. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those you have blessed, not of those against whom there is anger, nor of those who are misguided. Thank you. And now... I'll pray in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and loving God, we thank you for this conversation. We thank you for the ways that you speak to the hearts of people all over this world, Lord, and the ways that you are calling us to you. Lord, we ask that you would unite us in your love and in your peace and in your truth in a special way. And Lord, we lift up to you those who are hurting, those who are victims of violence. Lord, we pray especially for the situation in Palestine and Israel. Lord, we can't see a way forward, but we know that you can do miraculous things and there's nothing you can't do. And so we ask you, we plead with you, we ask you to, to send your grace and your mercy upon this situation and to uh, heal those who are hurting and to bring a resolution that we cannot see. And we ask for your blessing on all of us and who are listening and help your will to be done in our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listeners, thank you for being with us today on this uh, 
a little different episode of Pop Culture Catechism. Sham, I want to say a special thank you to you. Again, you didn't know me from anybody, and you came on a Catholic podcast as a non-Catholic to share some controversial opinions about controversial topics uh, with strangers on the internet and share personally about your life. So I just want to thank you. Thank you for your time. It's like 11 o'clock on a Wednesday right now. So just thank you for your generosity and your your willingness to have this conversation with me. I I really appreciate it. And uh, if do you want to be found? Like, where can people find you if they want to know more do you sure. have a website um, i don't have a website right now but the best way is on instagram um i have a public page and my instagram name is prof sham so p-r-o-f-s-h-y-a-m underscore we'll 1979 right? awesome great yeah we'll put that in the show notes if you want to follow him and uh any any last things you want the people to know before we head out um i guess in the words of like the my biggest flex i guess I want to just share with you is that I met Gene Wilder before he died. All no. right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a pop culture reference for Who you. Who doesn't love Willy Wonka? Do yeah, he wasn't Willy Wonka. We haven't done a Willy Wonka episode yet. So listeners, thank you for coming with us. If you're, especially if you're still listening at the end of this longer episode, and if this has been edifying for you, if you've learned something, if it's touched your heart, I really encourage you to share this with somebody. That's the best way that this show grows. Um, and I want to thank you for listening, especially if you didn't agree with everything we said, there's probably some things that we said or didn't say that you're like, they should have said this, or they shouldn't have said this. And I just want to you know, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to opinions and ideas that are different than your own. I think that's one of the ways that we come together as a human family. If you want to help this show grow, I would really appreciate uh, if you go to popculturecatechism.com, you can become a patron of this show and choose from one of six giving levels that helps out our show and everything that happens at Awaken Catholic. You can also go to a uh, Catholic store and buy some awesome Catholic swag, which also supports our shows. I want to give a special thank you to all our patrons, but especially Carl and Melissa Gore, Lisa and Bob Tenney, Steve and Maggie. Hubbard and Tom and Emily Camberiati. Thank you so much for listening and we love you. God loves you more and we will see you next time.